break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 18th of March, 2022. Very happy to be back with you here on the show. Plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about police misconduct and the death penalty in the state of Pennsylvania and how that's indicative of what happens all across the country. We're also going to be talking about the ongoing resistance in Sudan. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the ongoing repression in Kashmir. Press Council of India released a new report on media repression in Kashmir, noting that at least 35 journalists in Kashmir have faced police interrogation, raids, threats, physical assault, or fabricated criminal cases since India's government intensified the crackdown in the region in 2019. The report also notes that many dozens more journalists have faced other types of repressive actions, including being placed on no-fly list to prevent them from leaving the country. Many are arrested under the guise of the so-called Jammu and Kashmir Public Safety Act that allows detention without charges or trial for up to two years. Just this week, Fahad Shah, editor of the outlet Kashmir Walla, was detained under the so-called Public Safety Act, his fourth arrest in 40 days, including a previous booking for sedition under India's draconian quote-unquote anti-terror laws that have been mainly used to harass and jail critics of the government. And critics of these moves against the media in Kashmir have noted that they fit a pattern of deepening repression against the press since 2019, including the closing down of the press club in January, when the Indian government ended the autonomous status of the Kashmir region to enable better exploitation of the land and resources, and as part of a broader far-right cultural campaign waged by the Modi government against Muslims. In October of last year, to give a sense of the depth of the repression, a small group of students in Kashmir were charged with terrorism for rooting for Pakistan in a cricket match against India. India occupies Kashmir with 700,000 troops in an area that has been a major hot zone of conflict for decades. Kashmir is a majority Muslim territory, and its legal status has been contested since the partition of Pakistan and India in 1947. Kashmir was one of what were known then as the quote-unquote princely states, whose elites were allowed to choose whether they became a part of Pakistan or India. Kashmir technically became a part of India, but ultimately, this was never fully resolved and its status in Pakistan, in India, or whether it should be independent has been a major issue ever since. India has, however, consistently sought to put its thumb on the scale of the outcome here through a brutal military occupation. The tipping point came in 1987, when Indian authorities rigged the regional elections, virtually shutting out Muslim parties who had won substantial amounts of the vote. This blatant disenfranchisement set off an armed insurgency that lasted into the 2000s. Comprised of various forces, including some prominent Islamist groups with ties to Pakistan, the insurgency was fueled by the deep brutality of the Indian armed forces. Somewhere between 50,000 and 100,000 people have been killed in the conflict, the vast majority Kashmiri civilians. 
Indian security forces occupying the valley have committed numerous massacres and used torture and rape as weapons of war. Indian intellectual Panjak Mishra describes it thusly, quote, In addition to the everyday regime of arbitrary arrests, curfews, raids, and checkpoints enforced by nearly 700,000 Indian soldiers, the valley's 4 million Muslims are exposed to extrajudicial execution, rape, and torture, with such barbaric variations as live electric wires inserted into penises. Indian journalist Arundhati Roy Covering massive protests in Kashmir in 2008, asked a young woman if she was worried about losing freedoms under a more Islamic form of government, assuming one came to power to displace the Indian occupation. And the protester responded, quote, What kind of freedom do we have now? The freedom to be raped by Indian soldiers? Despite claiming to be all for human rights, the United States has nothing of note to say about these abuses by the Modi government, nor many of the other abuses that they are engaging in all across India. Since the U.S. wants to use India as a cudgel against China— it's all fine to sweep this under the rug. The people of Kashmir have suffered for years in silence from the so-called international community, and clearly, the recent moves by the Modi government are designed to reduce the flow of information out of the region to make sure it stays that way. The struggle against the coup government in Sudan continues as large protests take place across the country and continue to face serious repression from authorities associated with the government all while the various resistance forces on the streets sharpen their political demands. On Thursday, at least 187 people were wounded, including 70 from gunshots, according to the Central Committee of Sudanese Doctors, as marches of thousands, tens of thousands, and hundreds of thousands, altogether, swept the country in protest of deteriorating economic conditions, in particular skyrocketing prices of critical commodities, including the price of food staples like bread. The protests continue to call for the total removal of the military from power and an all-civilian government with clear participation from the popular organizations at the heart of the anti-coup resistance. Those calls are increasingly connected to the economic situation, and the most comprehensive document to emerge from the grassroots calls for a new civilian government are to develop a, quote, developmental vision that ensures fair and equitable distribution of power and wealth in Sudan. It also includes calls to make health care and education free and social rights. It calls for the removal of all Sudanese troops from the war in Yemen and also calls for the annulment of all financial agreements made by Sudanese governments going back to 1989, which would include the recent IMF austerity measures implemented by the coup government. In South Darfur, all schools are closed as student protests said to be, quote, massive and unprecedented have been raging for four days as students are protesting an attack on teachers on Monday at a secondary school. The teachers had been preventing coup forces from coming into the school to arrest students who had been protesting high bread prices last weekend. The student protests have shut down many institutions in South Darfur due to their size and intensity and come alongside large student protests in several other cities in Sudan as well. The main slogan of the protest continues to be, quote, no negotiation, no compromise, no partnership with the military, end quote. And this is a crucial point, as the United Nations, African Union, the United States, the European Union, and the Gulf states are all increasing pressure on the movement to give up its demands and engage in a coalition government with the military forces who launched the coup. Despite their rhetoric around supporting the protest and deriding the repression, these international and regional forces deeply fear the fall of the coup regime. The military forces at the center of the coup are the guarantor of the critical things for these regional and international forces. The maintenance of austerity measures, normalization with Israel, and the continued participation of Sudanese troops in the war in Yemen, something the movement in the streets has vowed to end should they take power. 
In recent weeks, the security situation in the country has deteriorated markedly with the rise in all sorts of crimes. The protest movement is alleging this is a deliberate strategy by the coup government to try to associate the idea of quote-unquote democracy and the protest for quote-unquote democracy with insecurity to strengthen their hands with elements of the masses. The overall struggle then is continuing at something of a stalemate, but one thing does seem clear. The repressive actions of the coup forces seem to be totally failing to contain the anger of the masses of people. Kevin Dowling, a death row prisoner in Pennsylvania, has been granted a new trial after evidence emerged that a state trooper outright fabricated evidence used against him at a trial back in the late 90s. The court ruling granting Dowling a new trial noted his attorney at the time failed to even ask for the evidence that was available that could have revealed the efforts by the prosecution and the police to convict him on false evidence. Dowling was convicted of a murder at a strip mall in 1997. The only piece of evidence was eyewitness testimony, one eyewitness, in fact. That eyewitness stated that they saw Dowling at the strip mall roughly two hours before the murder. There was no physical evidence. However, at the time, the prosecution, checking up on Dowling's alibi, was told by the owner of a boat rental place at a lake over an hour away from the strip mall that Dowling was in fact there, and based on the owner's statement, there's no way Dowling could have arrived at the shopping center until 20 to 30 minutes after the witness was quote-unquote sure she saw him. In order to make it work, on the stand, a state trooper stated that the register the witness had checked out on was improperly calibrated and actually did not show the correct time, and that in fact the witness was there at a different time, so once again the timeline the police had constructed for the murder matched up. However, the cops actually examined this issue of the register at the time, and the evidence they gathered clearly showed that this was a lie. But the prosecution let the cop tell the lie, and Dowling's attorney, as mentioned earlier, never even requested the evidence that would have reflected this. Now, all of this actually took place about an hour or so before the murder, so theoretically it still could have been Dowling. But again, there is no physical evidence, and the only so-called eyewitness testimony is clearly not true, and given the lie by the cop, it seems highly likely they know it wasn't Dowling, but just wanted to try to make anything stick because they really had no idea who did it. Likely Dowling will prevail in his attempt to have his sentence overturned, given the total absence of evidence. It's worth noting here that this is not rare. In fact, 72% of all exonerations of people sentenced to death involve either police or prosecutorial misconduct. This case just adds another one to the long list of people sentenced to die because the cops decided to lie. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 